Thanks. Good luck, everyone. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you for joining us. And we will start the presentation in about a minute. Thank you once again for joining us. We'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, top five OSHA safety training topics, answers to who should be trained, when and why, presented by J.J. Keller. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine. I will moderate today's presentation. First, we'd like to thank you all for joining us. And on behalf of the National Safety Council, whose employees are currently working away from the office, we hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. We'll start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. To ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen Type your question and click the send button. Please feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. After this presentation, we'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you may also receive a link in a post-event email. With that, let's introduce our speakers. With us today is Tricia Hodkovich. Tricia is an EHS editor who provides content for safety and environmental related publications on topics such as hazard communication, hazardous waste operations, Bloodborne Pathogens, Spill Prevention, Title III of the Superfund Amendments and Reauthorization Act, Signs and Labels, and Written Plans. Also joining us is Mark Stromey, a senior editor who focuses on OSHA construction and general industry regulations. Mark is an authorized OSHA outreach construction trainer and the lead editor on various J.G. Keller publications, including the OSHA Compliance for Construction Activities Manual and the Construction Regulatory Update Newsletter. Additionally, Mark develops content for online safety training and authors numerous trade publications articles, numerous trade publication articles each year. Again, we'd like to thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Tricia, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Okay, thank you, Alan. And hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Today's webcast is sponsored uh, by JJ Keller Training. Uh, 
J.J. Keller Training Solutions cover a broad range of topics and are available in a variety of formats, training on demand, DVD, streaming video, video books, all of these to help you meet your needs. Backed by regulatory experts and using the latest techniques and technology, our training solutions give your employees the proper instructions they need. On behalf of our sponsor, thanks for joining us today. Safety training is critical to ensure employees know how to perform their jobs safely and without injury or illness. We're going to cover five training topics today. Powered industrial trucks, hazard communication, lockout tagout, bloodborne pathogens, and personal protective equipment. These are what we like to call bread and butter training topics. A lot of employers need to do training under these five topics. And hopefully you'll walk away from this event knowing more about who should receive training, when training should or must be provided, and why providing that training is important. If you have regulatory or training questions during this hour, feel free to pose them in the Q&A box, and we will also save time for a Q&A session. Mark will start us out with the first topic, powered industrial trucks. All right, thanks, Tricia, and thank you everybody for joining us today. Powered industrial trucks, or PITs for short, include forklifts, powered pallet jacks, stand-up rider lift trucks, uh, order pickers, that type of thing. In fact, that's one major compliance issue that employers have is they fail to train operators on all the types of PIT equipment they operate. Even powered pallet jacks require training under 1910.178, and that training needs to be equipment specific. Now, you don't necessarily have to train each operator on every pallet jack made by different manufacturers, but OSHA does prohibit allowing an employer who only has forklift training to operate a powered pallet jack without additional training. Uh, that's because the training must be for each type of equipment. OSHA requires that refresher training be conducted under certain, excuse me, certain circumstances. There's no set frequency, but you do need to retrain in these circumstances when there's an accident or near miss, when the operator is observed operating unsafely, when the operator is assigned to drive a different type of truck, when a condition in your workplace changes in a way that could affect that safe operation of the powered industrial truck. And finally, when an evaluation reveals deficiencies. Now, aside from refresher training, OSHA requires all operators to undergo a performance evaluation at least once every three years. Now, what about temporary employees? OSHA has a bulletin, it's their TWI Bulletin 7, that says generally the staffing agency is responsible for generic PIT training. And of course, the host employer provides the necessary site-specific PIT training and evaluation. Now, why is that? Well, it makes sense because the host employer is most familiar with the equipment being used and controls the conditions of the work site. The training and evaluation should be the same for temporary workers as that provided to the host employer's own employees in the same jobs. Now, if the staffing agency supplies PIT operators, the host employer must verify the training. 
the host employer must also conduct a workplace evaluation of each operator supplied by that staffing agency. The extent of the training and evaluation is based on the operator's past experience and may not need to be duplicated or be as extensive as the initial training and evaluation. OSHA goes on to say that if the staffing agency is providing the operators, uh, it may be in the best position to keep training and evaluation records. And it's good to know that in those cases, a host employer may choose, but is not required to maintain or store additional copies of the power industrial truck operators training records. OSHA does note that the host employer must know where these records are located and they must be accessible to an OSHA compliance officer during an inspection. And that makes a lot of sense because uh, the compliance officer is gonna wanna know where the training records are and the staffing agency may be uh, having those in their possession. So because of this as a recommended practice, the host employer and staffing agency may agree to share training records to ensure both parties are able to verify that that training is in fact completed. Let's talk about uh, some of the truck related topics. Uh, and these are performance oriented and why are, they, why are they that way? Well, that permits employers to tailor a training program to the characteristics of their workplaces and to the specific types of powered industrial trucks that are operating there. The regulation outlines specific truck related topics that must be covered. You can see these on the slide. Uh, there's also uh, a 1999 letter of interpretation uh, where OSHA answered a question on whether truck related training has to be weight and brand specific. And OSHA went on to say the training isn't based on weight or brand, but instead on whether the truck an employee operates uh, differs with respect to one or more of those truck related topics outlined on the screen. Very interesting letter of interpretation if you wanna take a look at it from 1999. The regulation also outlines workplace specific topics. You can see them on the slide. Uh, going back to that 1999 LOI, OSHA said that whether an operator that was trained and evaluated at one of the employer's facilities must receive additional training at another facility on workplace related topics. Well, that really depends on whether the two uh, facilities significantly differ with respect to any one or more of the topics. So if all the potential hazards addressed are the same, then you don't need to do any additional training or evaluation. Uh, but where all of the uh, employer's facilities, let's say that uh, the ramps are uh, similar, there's no narrow aisles, there's nothing like that, uh, no additional training is required. But uh, let's say if there was uh, loads to be carried at different facilities and those loads differed in composition or stability, well, that would be one of these topics that you'd have to cover. So that's very important to keep in mind. Now, as we know, not all OSHA regulations have requirements for conducting training, but 1910-178 
is one that certainly does. And according to the regulations that training uh, has to be done in very specific conditions. Uh, and it consists of a combination of formal instruction. What is that? Okay, that could be lecture, uh, discussion, computer, interactive computer learning. You're gonna show a video. Uh, you got some handouts that you're gonna pass out. Um, and then you need practical training. What is that? That's demonstrations performed by the trainer and practice exercises performed by the trainee. And finally, very important, an evaluation of the operator's performance must be done and it must be done in the workplace where they will be operating. In addition to all that, the regulations address duplicate power industrial truck training. Now, there's no need for additional training in a specific topic if an operator's previously received training on it, uh, and the training is appropriate to the truck and working conditions. And finally, the operator has been evaluated and found competent to operate the truck safely. Now, you get a lot of questions on this, but what about trainer qualifications? That regulation says only that the trainer must have the knowledge, training, and experience necessary to conduct the training. Now, OSHA, they said they left this intentionally performance-oriented uh, because they thought that the necessary qualification could be obtained in a ver variety of ways. What, what could some of those be? Well, how about through years of operating a PIT and knowledge of safe practices and OSHA regulations. Another one would be going to a train the trainer or similar course. And finally, they, they would consider some combination of an experience and training uh, to be necessary to uh, conduct the training. So those three things, uh, and again, OSHA is intentionally vague on this, but they will determine if they come in for an inspection uh, that you have met these criteria. Now, there are additional information to be found in a 2003 LOI. It says that the trainer must have operated the type of equipment they're training operators on so they can provide adequate instruction on how the equipment works, how it handles, that type of thing. So as an employer, you must designate someone you feel can teach the safe operation principles in an understandable manner and ensure that operators do in fact have the proper skill and knowledge before signing off on that certification. Be prepared, as I said, to state your case to OSHA as why uh, you have chosen a person to be the trainer. And then Equally important is the document that you must do. Uh, you have to certify that each operator and evaluated as required by the regulations. What, is, what do we have to have in that certification? Well, you can see it on the screen. We need to have the name of the operator, the date of the training and evaluation, and the identity of the person or persons performing the training and evaluation. And with that said, I'm going to turn it over to Tricia. Excellent. Thank you, Mark. So let's look at hazard communication. The 
hazard communication or HASCOM information and training provision at 1910.1200H1 is the most frequently cited serious OSHA training violation for general industry. It's OSHA's most wanted for training. And recently a company was cited for failing to provide effective HASCOM information and training for workers who were required to work with corrosive cleaning chemicals. Because one of the company's other locations were cite, was cited for a similar violation, the new violation was considered a repeat violation, so OSHA proposed a $60,000 fine. The long-standing HASCOM standard remains, as you can see, one of the most confusing OSHA regulations affecting over 5 million workplaces, even before its changes based on the globally Harmonized System, or GHS, in 2012, paragraph H was cited over 3,000 times every year. And we will examine the who, what, when, why, and how of the HASCOM training provision today. You must train all workers who may be exposed to hazardous chemicals under normal operating conditions or in foreseeable emergencies. Foreseeable emergency means any potential occurrence that could result in an uncontrolled release of a hazardous chemical. For contractors, the standard requires that the host and the contractor exchange information so each can train their own workers. Staffing agencies and host employers are jointly responsible for training temp workers. Staffing agencies must, at a minimum, provide generic training. The host employer holds the primary responsibility for training since it uses or produces chemicals, creates and controls the hazards, and is best suited to provide temp workers with site-specific training. So refer to Temporary Worker Initiative, or TWI Bulletin Number 5, for information on temp workers. Office workers, bank tellers, uh, others who encounter hazardous chemicals only in non-routine, isolated instances are not covered. OSHA does not specify who can present HASCOM training, nor is any formal certification required to do that. You, the employer, are responsible for ensuring your workers are adequately trained, so you decide who's qualified to conduct training, and OSHA does allow contractor-provided training. Training for each worker needs to cover the details of the written HASCOM program, including information about shipped container labels and any workplace labeling system you use. For example, if in-house labeling includes HMIS or NFPA rating systems, workers must understand what these systems mean and how to utilize the information. If you still have hazardous chemicals labeled under the old HASCOM standard, the one prior to 2012, you must provide training on the different labeling systems to ensure that workers understand that the lack of pictograms or hazard statements and so on does not mean that the hazards don't exist. Workers must understand that the labeling system for ship containers has changed since the purchase of these items. So ensure that workers are aware of where they can get all the information on the hazards of these chemicals. Another training element, safety data sheet or SDS requirements. 
This includes how to obtain and use the hazard information on an SDS, including the format. If you are maintaining material safety data sheets or MSDSs for products received prior to June 1, 2015, you must cover the differences between MSDSs and SDSs and how to utilize the MSDS. Now here are some remaining training elements. What operations have hazardous chemicals, including byproducts? The location and availability of the written program, chemical inventory, and SDSs. How you monitor for hazardous chemicals. Hazards of chemicals in the work area. And measures workers can take to protect themselves, like work practices, emergency procedures, and personal protective equipment. Training is required at the time a worker is assigned to work with any hazardous chemical and whenever a new hazard is introduced into the worker's work area. The requirement for an employer to provide updated training is based on the hazard, not the chemical. So if someone is working with a flammable solvent and another flammable solvent is introduced, the training does not need to be updated. However, in this case, if a corrosive is introduced, the training needs to be updated. You may choose to initially train based on the chemicals, and so if you have a small number of chemicals, you may wish to discuss particular, chemical or particular hazards of each chemical. And if a new chemical has hazards that a worker has been trained on, no retraining occurs. If the new chemical has a hazard the worker has not been trained about, retraining is limited to that hazard. Okay, so in multi-employer work sites, the employer is responsible for providing updated training when its workers are exposed to new hazards, even if these hazards are created by other employers. Refresher training is not required annually for HASCOM, but providing training once, then assuming years later workers are still knowledgeable is a risky assumption. It's wise to set up a system for periodic retraining. HASCOM training is a good thing. It ensures information is provided, explains and reinforces the information presented through labels and SDSs, and offers an opportunity for workers to ask questions. Training is required to be provided at no cost to workers, and workers must be paid for the time they spend at training. The training provisions are not satisfied solely by giving workers data sheets to read. Rather, your training program is to be a forum for explaining not only the hazards of the chemicals in the work area, but also how to use the information generated in the program. This can be accomplished in a number of ways, audiovisuals, classroom instruction, interactive video, and online training are good examples. However, OSHA explains that workers must also have the opportunity to ask questions and receive timely responses. The training must be comprehensible. If you give job instructions in a language other than English, then the HASCOM training and information will also need to be conducted in that language. If employees have low literacy, uh, training must be provided so they can understand it, such as by oral instruction. And as I said, you can either cover categories of chemicals or specific chemicals.
OSHA consistently holds that training must be effective. Uh, OSHA inspectors often ask workers if they know the location of SDSs, if they can list the health effects of chemicals they work with, as well as what to do in an emergency. So if workers cannot respond properly to these questions, even if the workers had been through documented training, OSHA can cite you. If you're interested in up-to-date, consistent HASCOM training content, J.J. Keller offers a wide variety of in-depth and micro-learning programs covering not only HASCOM, but all workplace safety, transportation, and HR products or topics. So use the poll on your screen to select your interests. And since J.J. Keller Training is the sponsor of today's webcast, when you ask for more information, you'll also receive a complimentary white paper, The Ins and Outs of HASCOM Training. So while we wait for those results, uh, Mark, uh, I have a real quick question about uh, going back to powered industrial trucks or uh, forklifts. Uh, when we train forklift operators on inspecting a forklift before using it, uh, do we um, do we have to instruct them to document it with a written inspection checklist? Well, to tell you the truth, uh, OSHA doesn't actually require the inspection to be documented in writing. Uh, but you know, with that said, employers do require the forklift inspection checklist to use for the pre-shift inspection. Why do they do that? Well, using a checklist, that's a best practice, and it serves to ensure that the operator uh, has actually performed the required inspection. And additionally, that checklist is a good way to prove to the OSHA compliance officer that you did, in fact, perform that inspection and that you have been, been performing them. Uh, so, when, when you have an inspector in your facility, you can get your uh, recent, recently completed checklist out and show him or her, and that will definitely uh, make things go a lot easier. Okay, I think, um, Mark, could you go to the slide on the impacts of the proposed rule? Thank you. So, all right, finally, one last slide on HASCOM. You may be aware that OSHA issued a proposed HASCOM rule in February. Changes are proposed uh, throughout the regulation and, and mainly impact the chemical manufacturers, importers, and distributors. So uh, employers, though, will need to maintain any new SDSs and train employees about new hazard classifications related to aerosols, desensitized explosives, and flammable gases. So that will be new. Uh, the hazards of these chemicals will not change, just their classification. Uh, and it's required that employees understand these classifications before they may be exposed to these chemicals at work. Uh, OSHA has not set a date for the final rules, so that could happen, you know, months or, or, or a year or so down the line. And now I'll turn things back to Mark. All right, thanks, Tricia. Next up is lockout, tagout. 
So an effective lockout takeout program, that's based on the training. OSHA requires you to train employees based on their duties and or exposures. This depends on whether the employees are considered authorized, affected, or other. Authorized employees need the most training and other employees the least. In all cases, employees must understand the purpose and function of your energy control program. What are the roles here? Okay, authorized employees, they do the servicing, maintenance, and repair. They apply the locks or tags, and they follow the lockout tagout procedures. Affected employees operate or use a machine. When a machine is down for service or maintenance, the employee can't run it, so he or she is affected by the equipment being locked out. Affected employees don't do any service or maintenance on the machine. Uh, they have to stay clear of the equipment during repairs. Very important, you gotta keep them back. Other employees are those whose work activities are or may be in an area where energy control procedures may be used. Cursor down there, all right. So, topics to cover here. There are three levels. Uh, authorized employees, we already talked about them. They need the most detailed training. They must be trained to recognize hazardous energy sources, the type and magnitude of the energy available in the workplace. And they have to know how to isolate that equipment from its energy sources. Then we have affected employees. We talked about them, they have to be trained to recognize a machine malfunction and know how to report that problem to authorized employees so it can be fixed. And then other employees, they are, uh, they're in the area, they may be you know, walking through uh, from the office or from another department. Uh, they see lockout tagouts being used. They have to be instructed about these procedures and about the prohibition relating to attempts to restart or re-energize machines or equipment which is locked or tagged out. And again, let's talk about temporary employees. Uh, yes, OSHA expects you to train them just like you would permanent employees. And again, in another TWI bulletin, this time number 10, OSHA states that the host employer is responsible for ensuring if a temp worker is performing activities covered by this lockout tagout standard, that worker is in fact properly trained and understands lockout tagout procedures and policies. What, are, what else do you have to cover? All right, well, what about when tagouts used? Um, of course, authorized, affected, and other employees must be trained in the following limitations of tags. What are they? Well, they're essentially warning devices and don't provide any real physical restraint like a lock does. They're of course not to be removed without permission of the authorized person responsible for them. And I never bypass uh, or ignore or otherwise defeat tags. Uh, what they do is they can evoke a false, false sense of security. Now. Employees must also be instructed that tags follow these requirements. They have to be legible and understandable by all authorized, affected, and other employees. They have to be made of materials that will withstand the environmental conditions encountered 
in the workplace. So make sure you make sure they don't fall apart if, if it's a wet environment or that type of thing. And then uh, they have to be securely attached to energy isolating devices so they can't be inadvertently or accidentally detached during use. Very important, you don't want them falling off. So when, when to train? Well, employees must be trained initially or prior to performing service or maintenance on equipment or a system uh, as needed for proficiency and when there are new or revised procedures. That all makes sense, right? There is also no annual training requirement for lockout, takeout, but again, um, it's always good to do some refresher training. That's up to you, though. And of course, training records, if it's not written down and never happened, uh, OSHA does require documentation. Specifically, the reg says you must certify the employee training has been accomplished, being kept up to date when certification must contain Okay, thank, thank you, Mark. So the next topic here, bloodborne pathogens. The phrase bloodborne pathogens, well, it sounds like something out of a medical book, and it was until 1991 when OSHA published a regulation under that name. 29 CFR 1910.1030 is meant to protect general industry and shipyard workers from exposure to hepatitis B, HIV, and other microorganisms that are transmitted through blood or certain other body fluids. The regulation covers over 700,000 employers and not just those in the healthcare industry. This regulation can apply to many in the manufacturing, service, government, and other industries. In fact, about 45% of bloodborne pathogen citations last year, last fiscal year, went to the industries other than healthcare. Even though the regulation has been around for years, it's still one of the most cited with about 250 to 500 federal OSHA violations each year. Another good reason to focus on this training topic today. According to the regulation, the employer shall train each employee with occupational exposure. So OSHA jurisdiction extends only to employees. It does not extend to unpaid students, for example, who are not employees. Also, it makes no difference whether the employee is full-time, part-time, contract, or temporary. An employee is covered by the training requirements if he or she has occupational exposure. You can refer to Temporary Worker Initiative TWI Bulletin Number 6 for information on temp workers. An exposure incident is actual contact with blood or other potentially infectious material or OPM, whereas occupational exposure is reasonably anticipated contact with blood or OPIM. In addition to being reasonably anticipated, the contact must result from the performance of an employee's duties. You likely would not reasonably anticipate an office worker to have contact with blood or OPIM, but if you designate the office worker to perform first aid involving blood-related injuries of coworkers, then that employee is considered to have occupational exposure. 
1910-1030 does not cover Good Samaritans. No employer can anticipate Good Samaritan Acts, so no employer can anticipate these types of exposures. Anyone who voluntarily assists a person at work is not covered unless they are designated or expected de facto to assist workers. Unfortunately, OSHA does not tell you what jobs or tasks have occupational exposure, so you have to make a determination whether your workers, whether they're housekeepers, maintenance workers, security personnel, or any others, have occupational exposure by definition. The occupations listed on the slide may have occupational exposure, but not necessarily in all cases. You may be wondering if one of your staff members is qualified enough to provide training. Well, you need to, a trainer that's knowledgeable in the subjects covered by the training elements listed in the regulation. And this trainer must also be familiar with how the training elements relate to your workplace. You don't have to have a healthcare professional do the training, but an OSHA inspector will look at the specialized courses, degrees, or work experience of your trainer, and if that inspector finds any deficiencies in your training program, then uh, that could be a problem. If there's no one qualified at your uh, location, you may need to send workers out to get trained or bring a trainer in, as long as that trainer meets the qualifications. While the provisions for employee training are performance-oriented with flexibility allowed to tailor your program to your employee's background and responsibilities, the training elements listed in paragraph G2VII of the Bloodborne Pathogen Standard must be covered at a minimum, and some elements call for site-specific information. The training elements uh, relate to the items that are listed on this slide. Information and training are required at three points in time. At the time of initial assignment to tasks with occupational exposure, and this means prior to being placed in positions where occupational exposure may occur, at least annually thereafter, and this means at least once every 12 months within a period not exceeding 365 days, training should be provided on a date reasonably close to the anniversary date. So if the annual refresher cannot be completed by the anniversary, you should maintain a record indicating why the training is delayed and when the training will be done. And the third point in time, when changes affect an employee's occupational exposure. Changes include modification of tasks or procedures or the institution of new tasks or procedures. The additional training may be limited to addressing the new exposures created. Ensure you provide bloodborne pathogen information and training at no cost to the employee during paid working hours. Other considerations in how to train. Comprehension. The regulation says your training content and vocabulary must be appropriate for your employees' education level, literacy, and language. Format, uh, audiovisuals, classroom instruction, interactive video, and online and computer-based training are good training tools and can be used as part of an effective training program. However, 
<laughs> training the employees solely by means of a film or video without the opportunity for discussion would constitute a violation. Similarly, a generic online or computer program, even an interactive one, is not sufficient unless the employer supplements such training with the site-specific information required and a trainer is accessible for interaction. During training, it is also critical that trainees have the opportunity to ask questions and receive answers where material is unfamiliar to them. Trainees must have direct access to a qualified trainer during the training. However, the trainer does not need to be in the room. Uh, OSHA's requirement can be met if trainees have direct access to a trainer by way of a telephone hotline. Email is not considered direct access unless the trainer is available to answer emailed questions at the time the questions arise. Sufficient Hands-on training is also important because it allows a trainee to interact with equipment and tools in the presence of a qualified trainer and gives the trainer a chance to assess whether the trainees have mastered the proper techniques. Records of bloodborne pathogens training are not confidential and they're kept for at least three years from the training date. Training records may be stored on-site where they will be accessible for review. Providing bloodborne pathogens training does not just make compliance sense, it makes common sense. An employee's health depends on receiving proper training on the job. Once your employees understand bloodborne pathogen hazards, taking safety measures will be a routine part of their jobs. The key is to train them before they are called to take action involving anticipated contact with blood or OPIM. The way they can make the right decisions, uh, or in that way, they can make the right decisions to safeguard themselves and their coworkers. If you need help satisfying OSHA's bloodborne pathogens training requirements, JJ Keller also offers training content in this area as well. Formats include DVD, video training book, streaming video, and online training course formats. So again, if you like or you would like more information on JJ Keller training, select your interests on the poll. We can also send you a complimentary white paper on bloodborne pathogens training. So well, again, once again, while we wait for results, uh, Trisha, I had a question for you. If someone is injured and another employee has to clean up a blood spill, does that employee need full bloodborne pathogens training or would awareness training be enough? Uh, thank you, Alan. Uh, thank you to the attendee. Uh, that, that's a super question. If uh, the worker's job includes, you know, cleaning and decontaminating of blood contaminated areas, that is occupational exposure as we discussed here. So yes, your employees who who are designated or expected to clean up the blood after someone has an injury uh, involving blood would require full training. So you'll, you'll take a look at 1910-1030-G2. There you'll find all of the training elements. But, you know, think about this. In, instead of training all of your workers, that, that can be quite a task there to do, you may want to designate a small number of workers uh, for blood cleanup and, and then give those workers the full training and then instruct your other uh, workers 
to simply, you know, notify those designated workers when there's a blood cleanup situation. So great, great question. Thank you. All right, Tricia, good answer there. Okay, our last topic before we turn your questions is uh, so I want to talk a little bit about this because I'm sure we've all seen this. Uh, the hierarchy of controls been around for quite some time. Let's start with the basic idea of controlling a hazard at its source, which is the best way to protect employees. We're going to talk about elimination and substitution. They're effective at reducing hazards. They tend to be the most difficult to implement in an existing process. So if the process is still at the design stage, uh, these two things are going to be relatively inexpensive and simple to implement. But if you've got an uh, existing process, uh, they may not work. Now, if the work environment can be changed physically to prevent employee exposure to the hazard, the hazard can be reduced with what they call an engineering control. What would that be? Okay, we're talking about a built-in barrier, an isolated space, uh, substitution of less harmful material there, independent of worker interactions. That's important. Now, the cost of these engineering controls uh, can be higher than the cost of administrative controls or PPE, but typically over the long-term costs are frequently lower operating costs. And in some instances, there's a cost saving in other areas of the processes. Now, if an employee can change the way they do their jobs and exposure to the potential hazards removed, then that is called a work practice control. What would they be? Well, how about inspecting processes and control equipment using wet methods if you're doing any kind of cutting of materials, uh, housekeeping, maintenance, that, that all falls under that. And then administrative controls, they require the employer or worker to do something. This can end, uh, include workers uh, being trained to understand warning signage related to the hazard. Uh, they're relatively inexpensive to establish, but over the long term can be very, very difficult and costly to sustain. They're also less effective than other measures requiring significant effort by the uh, affected employees. So just a little background here. Now, when these controls, engineering work practice and administrative controls aren't feasible or they don't provide sufficient protection, then employers must provide PPE to their employees and ensure that it's used. Now, what is PPE? Well, it's equipment worn to minimize exposure to a variety of hazards. Some of these uh, could be gloves, foot and eye protection, protective hearing devices, uh, hard hats, respirators. PPE is considered to be the last line of defense against exposure to workplace hazards. So providing PPE should not be taken lightly. And then again, training, what's the training aspect? Uh, each employee who is required to use PPE has to be trained. The training must include at least the following, when PPE is necessary, what PPE is necessary, how to properly don, doff, adjust, and wear the PPE so that it's comfortable. That's uh, extremely important. 
Otherwise, employees aren't going to wear it. The limitations and the proper care, maintenance, uh, useful life, let's say, of a respirator cartridge and disposal of the PPE. Now, these elements are listed in 1910-132, and those are the general PPE training requirements. Respiratory protection has a different set of training requirements and training elements. And you want to look at 1910-134K for that. Uh, so we don't cover those on the slide. They're, they're separate. Employee retraining. Uh, when the employer has reason to believe that any affected employee who's already been trained no longer understands the training or doesn't understand the skill required, the employer has to retrain that employee. That makes a lot of sense. It, it should go without saying. Circumstances, specific circumstances where retraining is required include, uh, but are not limited to situations like changes in the workplace where previous training is rendered obsolete, changes in the types of PPE to be used, uh, in, or inadequacies in an affected employee's knowledge or use of PPE. And that would indicate the employee has not retained uh, the required skill or understanding the training is required. With that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Christian. Here we go. Um, sorry about that. Uh, here we go. So COVID-19. Uh, you may find that the COVID-19 pandemic has presented difficulties in complying with OSHA training standards, including the ones we talked about today. And OSHA, o over the last, what, year and a half, has understood that and has provided some OSHA dis uh, enforcement discretion around the completion of training. However, um, this slide, um, I'd like to say, is now, in the recent days, um, uh, changed. Yeah, we'll have to uh, kind of walk through this here. Uh, in recent days, that enforcement discretion uh, has been rescinded. So on this slide, the April 2020 memo is no longer in effect. So if training is required, you'll need to have that or, or the annual uh, frequency, any of that, it will need to be all caught up. And uh, so this discretion has gone away. The March 2021 memo on this screen has also been rescinded, and but it is replaced with a new one. And it has the same name actually, but the date on that one, the updated interim enforcement response plan for coronavirus disease 2029, or excuse me, 2019, COVID-19, that has a new date. And you'll need to uh, bring that up. It's July 7th, 2021. Um, so that is the uh, guide or interim enforcement uh, that the agency will follow uh, when citing for COVID uh, hazards in the workplace. And for that, um, for most employers, they will be looking at the general duty clause and other current regulations that are in place already for those workplaces. Now, you may also be aware 
and the, so the last two bullets are still current. Um, OSHA did issue a final rule for an emergency temporary standard for healthcare on June 21st. And the new COVID-19 training provisions, and these are only for healthcare now, these are listed in that brand new regulation, 1910.502 paragraph N. And the covered employers under that regulation would need to provide initial training uh, by July 21st. So in the coming days from now, there's a deadline. However, employers in any industry, not just healthcare, may wish to refer to the non-mandatory guidance that was recently updated by the agency on June 10th. That is the last bullet that I'm showing on the slide. And this voluntary guidance talks about the topics that OSHA recommends that employers cover with employees, as well as other applicable regulations. There are a number of regulations that still kind of come into play, like PPE, um, respirators, that sort of thing, um, maybe some exposure records, uh, perhaps. Uh, um, and these other regulations uh, may require training. All right, Mark. All right. So before we move on to our Q&A session, and please continue to send the questions in. We're getting some good ones. Uh, I'd like to once again mention the sponsor of today's webcast, JJ Keller Training. Whatever your company's needs, JJ Keller Training can help with 24-7 access to hundreds of online courses and streaming video training across multiple industries. If you missed the opportunity or joined us late, we're offering a free white paper of your choice when you request more information on JJ Keller Training. Uh, there's a poll there. Uh, so you can make uh, make your choice, uh, and we'll be happy to send that out. Uh, hopefully by the end of the week, we'll have it in the mail. And now, Alan, I think uh, we're ready to uh, take some questions. So, Alan, back to you. All right. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. And thank you both for this uh, fantastic and insightful presentation. Uh, before we start the q a i want to remind everyone about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete the survey will open in a different screen after this webinar your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast and you were correct we have had a number of questions and a number of great questions and i'll pose the first one to you mark um for a company who considers itself construction but also does um general industry work how do you convince um how how do you convince that they need training or to follow both sets of regulations? Does OSHA have simple definitions uh, of which set applies to whom? Absolutely. We get this question a lot um, because a lot of co construction companies have warehouses, they have machine shops, they do vehicle maintenance, they uh, don't just operate out on a construction site. And of course, those uh, warehouse operations are not considered construction. OSHA says it's the task that determines which set of regulations apply. And there are some letters of interpretation out there that give more information, specifically more information about when a general industry company is having its own employees do construction work 
they need to, those employees and that employer need to follow the construction regs. It's the task, not the company, because some companies say, oh, we're uh, JJ Keller, we do printing and we have uh, experts. Uh, we don't do construction. Well, if our employees are repairing a roof or doing some painting, which is considered construction, uh, then we follow the, the construction regs, vice versa. If a, a construction company has a warehouse, that company follows the 1910 regulations. Uh, they have to determine which ones, of course, if they're operating forklifts in the warehouse, that would be 1910-179. Um, so, so it is, it's very um, easy to differentiate by the task, not the name of the company. Uh, my next question is for Tricia. Is it acceptable to use chemicals with old labels as long as we train the employees on HMIS or NFPA labels? Okay, Alan. Uh, so, um, yes. Uh, under the workplace labeling provision under HASCOM, um, so 1910-1200 paragraph F, number six, that talks about your workplace in-house labeling, uh, there's a, two options there. You can follow the GHS style in-house, or you can follow an alternative uh, labeling style. And uh, while the regulation doesn't specifically say NFPA or HMIS, it just says alternative labeling style, um, and it, it, HMIS and NFPA would meet that alternative option. However, there's one other thing to read in the fine print there. They also, on that alternative label, would require the product identifier. So if you know you're just, you have this HMIS or NFPA label and it, it doesn't list the product identifier, you will need to make sure that is added. Um, also, OSHA has stated in letters of interpretation that that the NFPA and HMSs are acceptable if they don't conflict with HASCOM labels in general, and generally that should be the case. One thing of note, though, I would add is um, in the compliance directive, um, it explains that there may be hazards that OSHA requires you to have on the label that aren't part of the rating systems that are used for NFPA and HMAS. So it, for those missing hazards, those gaps, if you will, you would need to add those also to your label. So kind of a complex answer there. It's kind of a yes, no, maybe kind of situation. Um, it's allowed as long as it's complete there, includes the product identifier and all the hazards that are required. So I hope that makes sense. Thank you, Alan. No, thank you. Um, Next question for Mark. Uh, when you're training employees for lockout tagout, do you recommend also including the new requirement under NFPA 70E for electrical contact release to occur or, or conduct this separately with just arc flash training? Well, that's a really good question. A lot of times you want to keep these separate, but if you had employees in there where this contact release would definitely apply, you could do it. Uh, that's in NFPA 70E. I'm looking at the 2021 edition paper copy here. It's on page 18, talks about emergency response training. A lot of really good information here. I hope everybody has 
access to 70E, the, the new one. Uh, with, with this training, um, 70E is recognized as a best practice by OSHA and they can cite you under it. However, it's not really referenced in the regulations, but like I said, it's, you can get cited under it. So I would definitely do the training if you feel that it's applicable to that class or those the group of uh, employees that may come into contact and have to do this kind of release. Uh, it may not apply to everybody. So that's something you would determine. But again, I would highly recommend it going above and beyond the regulations. The OSHA regulations are just the base. We want to go past that. So with that. Yeah, well, it looks looks like we might have time for one more question. I was going to ask Tricia. Um, you, you mentioned a couple of times a training in a language um, that workers can understand. I, I didn't know if you wanted to talk more about that or mention or kind of uh, address that. Uh, I think we had a, we had a sure. question about what uh, what were you saying about training in, in a language? Yeah, so you can imagine some of your workers may only speak a foreign language. And so as you're training in English, they're not going to comprehend it um very well and so um there are numbers of letters of interpretation directives and and sometimes right in the regulation where it will state that the training must be provided in a language that the employee can understand and they go on to say if if you normally provide job instructions to these employees in that language other than English, um, then you ought to uh, provide the training, Bloodborne has come, in, in that same language so it's understood. This, that makes your training effective and overall OSHA does require that all training, all required training anyway, be effective. So I hope that makes sense. Thank you. <clears throat> Well, thank you. And thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but any answer questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Again, we also hope you take the time to share your feedback through our survey. This in today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Tricia Hodkovich, Mark Stromey, our sponsor, JJ Keller, and of course, everyone who joined us today. Take care and be safe.